All right. So we're going to get into the universal versus the local church. We talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, kind of prematurely, but we will dive in and look at some of the differences. The universal church is also known as the invisible church because we can't see all the believers in the world or in heaven. We see in Hebrews 12:23. It probably would have been a good thing if I had that queued up, but that's all right. Hebrews 12 is talking about discipline uh, and how discipline is a good thing. And in verse 23, uh, I'll read 22 and 23. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the, generation, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So there we see a reference to the universal church, to those who are uh, in the general assembly, but they are enrolled in heaven, judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So talking about anybody who is actually in Christ, who has been regenerated, made new, um, and bought with his blood. That is a reference to the universal invisible church. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Remember that it's not all who claim to be Christians, but it's all who have been imputed with Christ's righteousness. Uh, and that is important, something that we have to constantly stress, not just the churches themselves who claim to be Christian churches, but the individuals. Uh, according to polls, like two to three billion people in the world are Christian, right? But that's taking all of Christendom, as it would be called, um, Catholicism, uh, Anglicans, as we looked at last week, and just all the different denominations of Christianity, uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and then anybody who just happens to have been born in a certain country. Uh, 70-80% of America might claim to be Christian just because we live in a, a quote-unquote Christian country, right? Based on Judeo-Christian values, that doesn't make everybody Christian. So just claiming to be a part of the universal church isn't going to cut it. Universal church is made up 100% exclusively of those who are legitimate believers. And that is opposed to the local church. The local church is also known as the visible church because we can see all the believers in our area. First uh, Corinthians 16 talks about the churches to Galatia, same as Galatians 1 to um, where Paul is writing to the churches in the region of Galatia. So he mentions their churches plural, not just one church, referring to the universal church, but to these different individual local assemblies where believers, professing believers, will come together to worship. Uh, and then Romans 16.5 speaks of the churches that meet in their houses. So again, we see a plurality of churches mentioned there. And just like those who are in the universal church are all believers, those who are in a local church are not necessarily all believers. Um, I would venture to say that most churches are probably not made up of 100% believers, but less than 100%. There are people who go because they want a good feeling, they want a sense of doing good. There are people who go who think that they are redeemed and regenerate, but uh, in reality are not. These Christians are not only committed to Christ, they are committed to one another and the advancement of the gospel locally. So that's our working uh, definition for 
universal and local church, visible and invisible. Thoughts or questions on that so far? All right. Um, I've put up a diagram similar to this before. So if this is the local church or the visible church, um, I think we could rightly say that the, the universal invisible church is mostly inside of the visible church, that those who are in Christ are going to seek to commune with those other believers who are in Christ. We're going to have a love for the brethren. And also, again, not everybody in the visible church is a believer. So I think that circle would be smaller and mostly inside of there, though I think we could allow for some outside, some people who don't go to church. But overwhelmingly, I think if you are in Christ and you're going to find yourself worshiping or fellowshipping within a local church. All right. Church distinctions between universal and local church. And we have an outline that's partially filled out on your paper that you can fill out more fully. So in the universal church, believers are all around the world. So we're not limited by geography, but we are united uh, just as much with one another as we are with believers in different countries, Germany, Georgia, like the country, uh, Asia, Russia, everywhere else. We are united with them. Whereas a local church speaks of believers in a specific geographical area. <clears throat> um, and we can see this kind of flushed out when we travel, right? We go to a different church and we can have a kind of kinship and relationship automatically with other believers because we are both in Christ. And even though we're not a part of that local church, we're still accountable to our local home church we can still have fellowship and relationship with other believers. The universal church differs on some secondary column issues, but they agree on the first. So things like uh, the gospel, what is a gospel? The fact that um, God is triune, right? Um, these different aspects that are definitional to Orthodox Christianity. Uh, everybody in the universal church is going to agree on that. Whereas in local churches, we have specific agreement on, uh, I would say, most secondary doctrine. Um, of course, there's some secondary doctrine that we can disagree on. Um, but as, especially in leadership, I think leadership should be <coughs> in agreement on nearly all secondary doctrine. And then that's just going to work its way out through the, the culture of the church. The universal church is a living, worldwide, God-blessed organism rather than organization. It's an organism. It's living. It's growing. It's active. Um, there is life within the universal church. And then a local church uh, is planted. It will see growth. And some of them will die. Uh, it's just kind of the natural life cycle of the church. Um, these churches that Christ wrote to in the book of Revelation, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, um, they're not really around. There are some churches who have kind of overtaken that area and maybe that name or title. But those churches lived, they had a lifespan, and then they died. And then even within our own uh, geographical area, there are churches who pop up and they leave. When Brent and I first came out to Utah, we were working with a church plant that doesn't exist anymore. It's <coughs> dead or uh, it's been melded with another church. That's just how local churches work but not the universal church. And then with the universal church, Jesus is the only shepherd. He is the good shepherd, right? He is the head of the church, as we discussed a little bit last week. 
then local churches have under shepherds called to care for the flock who submit to Christ as the shepherd. So um, when Christ talked about him building his church, we have to recognize that it is his church. And if you guys ever hear a pastor or church leader say that they have a church, um, that should perk your ears up a little bit and cause you to just question because it is Christ's church and we are here to build his church. Well, he is building his church through us, really. We aren't building his church. We are certainly aren't building our church, but he is building his church and we are submitting to him and seeking to, to honor him in doing that. We are blessed to be used by him. Thoughts or questions on that slide? All right. So, oh, one more. I didn't see that. Uh, Universal Church is one has one big mission. Um, talking about the the Great Commission, right? That um, we are to honor Christ. We are to baptize people into um, the one name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are his ambassadors sent out to reconcile the lost world to a loving God. And then the local church additionally has custom missions. So every local church that is a true church should have that same mission, that same focus in mind. But they should have specific um, focuses and goals that they seek to accomplish along the way. Um, Like our church, we have a a goal to reach 10,000 people in our footprint with the gospel. That's not something that is um, for every local church. That's something that's unique for our church. That's one of our desired missions. All right, so knowing this, what do you suppose Jesus had in mind when he stated that he would build his church? In Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yeah. Yeah, so he's not speaking of local churches because otherwise we could say, well, that didn't happen, right? This church was built, this one, this one, thousands of churches have been built and, and failed. Uh, it's been said most churches fail. I've heard a couple different things uh, within the first five years, but then I recently heard somebody say, well, that's not really true. But within the first 10 years, for sure, uh, the majority of churches uh, go under and fail. But the true believers that were in those churches that were participants in that church, they will continue on. They'll find other places to worship and fellowship because the universal church of God, the invisible church of God, will never fail. All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 1. And we'll look at the foundation of the church. So Acts chapter 1, I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 8. So Luke writing says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father had promised, for that which the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. All right, so in that passage, was Jesus correct concerning his assertion in verse 8? Let me just tell you, anytime you hear that question, was Jesus correct in anything? The answer is yes. So let me restate that. Why was Jesus correct concerning his assertion in verse 8? And why might other people think that he wasn't? Well, he said in those parts of the world, Yeah. I would say that the early church grew in modern day Turkey and um, parts of what are now Islamic countries, right? Mm-hmm. And that that would be the argument that, that unbelievers make that Jesus wasn't correct. But again, local body coming and going, um, you know. God's church remains to this day. And and has actually grown a lot. So Yeah man. Yeah, so oh go ahead, Drew. Well I even then the followed in the first hundred years, we have good evidence that um, the apostles themselves and their direct uh, prodigies went far as China, and I believe they probably went on beyond that. I believe that a lot of the uh, obvious spiritualism of the American Indians was, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, decayed teachings that were passed on all the way back then. We know it went way down into Africa, we know it went all the way send them even in those early years some representations everywhere because at that time people were traveling everywhere it was not a it was the, it's just much slower to travel well yeah it was slower but they were more persistent I mean they knew how to do that it was it was <laughs> a common thing to go to go wherever they had to go and you know, that's part of what God did with the Greek culture to unify so many cultures, at least to a language, and then the Roman means of travel with their protection and a relatively quiet world, and even in wartime, people move around. Just like when persecution happened, they went everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, so I think in the first century they did go all throughout the at least the known world but yeah we can surmise perhaps they went farther and we are if you have a believer who gets converted in some culture mm-hmm. and the spirit is in there's no there's nothing to say that the spirit of god didn't do that yeah you know, even up even through the 
the last 2,000 years, what we are aware of is what got written down. And that's only a tiny fraction of what actually happens in the world. Mm -hmm. History, it takes a relatively secure, developed culture to create written histories, documented histories. The other cultures don't, but things are still happening, and there's no reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, God didn't say anywhere that he would write down the history of every local body at all. And so mm -hmm. what we know about is a tiny, tiny part of what actually happened. Yeah, and we do have some histories of what God has done in other places. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and that's pretty interesting to see the disciples in different areas and regions that they went to, and they really had a, a great influence that we don't really have. We have uh, mostly what Paul did, some of what Peter, Peter did, but uh, we see Paul and how he went all throughout Europe pretty much single-handedly. He went up into Asia Minor and uh, Thyatira and Lydia was a convert and they just kept moving all throughout and down into Africa and yeah the gospel spread like wildfire and again we go back to the person of Christ and the attributes of Christ that he is truth right so if he says something we can know for sure it's going to happen um, and yes to Andy's point we can see why some people might have issue with that but uh, we can look at, at scripture at extra biblical stuff and uh, especially the, the promises and the character of God. And we can know that his word is true. And he is still building his church, right? Still bring people into his kingdom. Well, I may go just one little you know, we, we just don't pay attention to our history of what we have right now. And when I was a kid, uh, our little local bodies had missionaries everywhere in, in China, mm -hmm. in, um, in Russia, in all throughout Africa, I don't know 99% of those stories, but lots of things happen all over the world. You know, you go up, uh, the pastor in uh, Alaska was one of the first people to fly into eastern Russia when the wall came down, and they found believers over there because the Eskimos were not limited to travel hmm. like the rest of the world, they, because they were family on both sides of the land. They, they went back and forth and they were, yeah. they were carrying the gospel with them. Amen. That's cool. Just to find yeah, I imagine in part that's what we'll spend eternity doing is yeah, kind exactly. of seeing exactly. how God worked and moved in ways that we couldn't even see or acknowledge and, uh, at this time. Yeah. Well, we also have to remember that <clears throat> we have an enemy that wants to dishearten and and uh, marginalize and isolate Christians in, in their hearts and in their minds. Mm -hmm. not, not just out there, but in here. And there are, um, you know, I, I find few, if any, even in the United States, of, of um, media outlets that that take a Christian worldview, mm -hmm. few, yeah. right? And my point is, is that by the same token, you know, in Soviet Russia and the USSR, there was a state-run media. That was the only newspapers that people got. I'm not, I'm not saying it's the same, okay, yet. No, I'm making connections in my own life. I'm not saying it's the same yet, but my point is, is that like, like 
Jerry is saying, these things are going, you know, people are reaching out and the gospel is going out into the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to our way of understanding the United States, but you know, they say, what do they say that, uh, the, the ground of the, of the gospel is, is watered with blood. You know, the martyrs go and they, they're called to do this and they step out in faith. And when persecution occurs, which it's occurring all around the world right now, the church grows, like in China. You know, they, they estimate that in China, there's more believers than there are in the United States. You know, they're talking hundreds of millions, literally. Yeah, yeah they have a so massive population. They have a massive population. You know, whether, whether or no they're doing it, you know, in conjunction with the Communist Party's designated churches, I don't know. But the point is, is that there have been men inspirited by Satan, by the evil one, who've been trying to stamp out the church for 2,000 years. It hasn't happened yet. It's never going to happen. Amen. Right. All right. Good. All good things. All right. Uh, back in Acts 1, uh, let's work our way through and see if we can quickly look at these different passages. Uh, who can get Acts 2.14 for us? 2.14. All right, 2.14. Ellie, will you get 8, 1 through 5? What about 9.31? Who's got that? Walker, 10, 1 and 2. Jerry... Uh, Jerry, will you grab 44 through 48 while you're there too? Uh, 13, 44 through 48. Rex, 21, 1 through 8. I'll grab that one. And then Mandy will get 27, 114. All right, so let's start at the beginning. Uh, 214. 214. I forgot who had that. There we go. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and to give ear to my words. All right. So, uh, what was the mandate in Acts 1 8? Where were they to go? All the world. In Jerusalem, right? Yeah. And then where? Judea. And then Judea. And all what? Samaria and the rest of the world. Samaria. And then everywhere, right? All right. So, in that passage, in not everything, I shouldn't talking right everywhere uh, in 214 we see that they go to Judea Peter's there preaching and uh, just like pretty much everywhere that he preached he saw fruit right people were added to their number daily and it grew into multiplication we'll see that as we work our way throughout these passages 8 1 through 5 okay. on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea, Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ, proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. All right. 
So, if we go back and we look in uh, chapter 1 where we read, they were told to stay there, right? To wait, to congregate together. And then in verse 8, uh, the popular verse, they were told, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And that happened in chapter 2, right? The Holy Spirit came on them when Peter was preaching, uh, fell down, and at that point they were to scatter and disperse. But we see here, um, and leading up to this, that they were still sticking around in Jerusalem. They weren't going out. They were nice and comfortable, and maybe not comfortable, but uh, they were maybe not quite as obedient as we, with our 21st century eyes, look back and think that they should have been. What was it that spread them out and got them going to these other regions? Yeah, they were persecuted, right? And uh, on the day that the great persecution began against the church of Jerusalem, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So, this persecution, um, like Andy, you were talking about this spiritual warfare that um, I'm sure Satan thought he was being uh, effective. This is actually what launched them into these other regions to fulfill the mission that Christ had given to them. All right, 931. Who's got that one? Oh, that's me. <laughs> then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It, it was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. All right. That's right in between uh, Saul persecuting and, and then going out. And this was really before he had even taken up his mantle as the apostle to the Gentiles. And the gospel had already spread to where Jesus had commanded them to take the gospel to. And then the great Apostle Paul comes on the scene, right? So, uh, back to our question about whether or not Jesus was telling the truth. Uh, a foolish question to begin with. Uh, 10, 1, and 2, and 44 through 48. Now, there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a hmm. centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. All right. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. But they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And All right. Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. All right, so chapter 10 and 11 are really foundational, talking about how the gospel is for the Gentiles. Uh, back in verse 1 and 2, we see that this man Cornelius, he was a God-fearer. So, that's a, a sect, a different group of men who um, they want to embrace Judaism, but they didn't want to go all the way, so they didn't embrace circumcision, um, but they still embrace the God of Judaism. And they are coming to Christ, not just to uh, the understanding of Yahweh as God, but the understanding of Christ as Yahweh. And then farther down, um, like we read in 45, all the circumcised believers, so um, those who are Jews are coming to Christ. And we've known that all throughout, right? That's nothing new at this point, even though, um, as we've talked about recently, that's not happening in, in large number today, um, because we are in the time, the period of the Gentiles. And we see that 
uh, in these latter verses that uh, the gospel had been poured out on the Gentiles too. And they baptized them. They welcomed them into the church. So the gospel was for the, the God-fearers, for the Gentiles, uh, and for the, the Jewish people as well. Everybody was coming to Christ. Right, 13, 44 through 48. Okay. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Amen. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All right, so this kind of goes back to what we've been looking at for the last several weeks, that the gospel was first for the Jewish people, right? Uh, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and then for the Gentile. Uh, same picture in Romans 11, that that uh, olive tree um, is what we are grafted into. It is a representation of Israel. The Gentiles are grafted in. And we see here that uh, the light has been given for the Gentiles that they may be brought to salvation uh, to the ends of the earth. And when this command was first given back in 1 8 to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, uh, that was not yet revealed that this would be taking place through the Gentiles. So if they had stopped to think about it, I'm sure they could have surmised, well, how's it to go to the ends of the earth if it's just for the Jew? Because the Jews were pretty tightly. Uh, Compacted, right? They were uh, geographically pretty close. Um, but uh, we're told that this was a, a mystery, Ephesians 3, that the church and the fact that the gospel was for the Gentiles was a mystery that was not yet revealed. And we see as we're going throughout this history in Acts that that's becoming more and more clear. Um, we're going to jump over chapter 14 and 15. 15 is where they have the Jerusalem Council and they're trying to figure out, okay, well, these Gentiles are coming to faith. And Paul tells of his his experience and Peter tells of his uh, encounters and they come to this understanding, okay, well, yeah, salvation is certainly for the Gentile and we don't want to impose this uh, requirement of circumcision upon them because that's not how they come to faith. Um, but they have this whole council to try to figure out well, what do we do now. Um, we're going to jump up to chapter 21 and see how the gospel continues to spread there. Verses 1 through 8. When we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. You guys hearing all these different places that they're going to, spreading the gospel to Kos, Rhodes, Patara, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Syria, now Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. So there were already disciples there. And they broke out their phone book and they figured out where they were. And uh, they were able to go and stay with them and hang out with them because they were already there, right? Um, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit, they not only were there, they had the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. 
When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with their wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and enter, entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. So all these different cities they're going to, they had believers already in place that they were able to lodge with, who were showing hospitality to them. Uh, we just see how the gospel has already spread up until this point, um, and again just keeps continuing to, to grow and grow after this. And then the last one we'll look at is 27 verses 1 and 14. Oh yeah, I was looking at 41. Sorry, yes, 14. Yeah, I got dyslexic for a second. Um, You're Aquila? Huh? You're Aquila? Striking a place yeah. where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow struck fast and remained with the local disturbance. Are you sure? No. <laughs> I said that's what I was looking at. Sorry. Yes, you were right in 14. I was, my eyes glanced down to 41. Um, so yes, that was right. Uh, but we see there that they landed in Italy, right? Um, and then God continued to, <clears throat> to move them on. Uh, Paul ended up in Rome. Um, Philippians, he's writing about those who are in the, the Roman guard who are coming to Christ. Uh, how everybody greets you, even those in Caesar's palace. And just these little kind of, um, I don't know, hidden veiled messages that the gospel is spreading. Uh, all throughout the world. So we can see that when Christ gave this commission to his church, it was being taken seriously. It was being fulfilled. And it's certainly being taken very less seriously today than, than it was back then, uh, less seriously than it should be. But the gospel is still going forth because it is impossible for it not to. It will not fail. God has said he will build his church, his universal church. And he does so by establishing local churches with the, the same mission of the universal church who are going to lift up and honor and glorify the king and spread his gospel throughout their region. Any thoughts or questions on Acts? Mm-hmm. And just throughout history, some of them are more obedient than others, and some are more impelled by the Spirit than others. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to do what he intends to do regardless. Yeah, it goes back to that conundrum of sanctification, right? That the Holy Spirit is the one who is working within us. Um, but yet we still have a responsibility to submit to Him, to allow Him to do the work. So any progress... Uh, in an ecclesiastical sense where the church is going forth and is uh, growing and is being matured it is because of the power of the work of God. Um, and any 
lack of that happening um, by comparing our day and generation to their day and generation is a result of our, our flesh and our unwillingness to submit, to be obedient. And of course, we can cite other factors, uh, developing technology and um, different distractions, the less of the eyes, less of flesh, pride of life. Um, but again, that all ties back to our flesh being unwilling to submit to the power of the work of the Holy Spirit, but he will prevail nonetheless. All right, let's Can turn I to... Say one other thing? Yes. From what Andrew was saying, which I think we just often ignore too easily about the first, the... Uh, it's spiritual. The spiritual warfare. Uh, so the first uh, martyr was Stephen, hmm. and that was purely Jewish persecution up to that point, because in chapter 12, I think... Verse two is the most remark, one of the most remarkable sentences in the Bible. Uh, Herod laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And that's all it says about him. But here we see the political system joining hands mm -hmm. with the religious anti-Christian organization. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, the remarkable thing to me is that you know, James was one of the big three of Jesus' apostles, and it says nothing about it. <laughs> now I mean, he's gone. Yeah. yeah. No warning, no comments, no reaction, nothing. Mm -hmm. It's just how. That's just pretty remarkable. It's one of the reasons you can know that this was written by. God and not by man, because there isn't any man who wrote that there on his own would have elaborated on that mm -hmm. and made something of James when in fact that was God's plan for him and he was, that's all he needed to say about yeah. it. And I'm sure they did mourn over him and it, it was a big deal, but yeah, that's not focused on because... Um, there's been lots of dispute over even the name of this book. Should it be called the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is doing His work through the Apostles. But uh, to your point, this isn't emphasized as if all the Apostles are to be venerated and, and worshipped and honored um, because they're just tools, right? They're just being used by God. Um, and He wasn't replaced. Um, well, yeah, He wasn't replaced. and He was just... That's because he was he's there and still gone. In the, he's still in the invisible church. We don't leave the church when we die. Amen. We're still part of the church. Amen. That's why we don't have to replace it. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Let's look at uh, two forty-two through forty-seven. This is a great uh, summary of what the church was doing then, and I think what the church should be focused on now. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Somebody grab that. I got it. All right. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right. What are the four qualities of the church we see in verse 42 that they were devoting themselves to? Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. All right. And they were continually devoting themselves to these things, uh, which is interesting because we don't continually devote ourselves to uh, the the breaking of bread. Um, that's distinguished from fellowship. So I think that's talking about communion, the Lord's Supper. So uh, starting today, we're going to be doing that weekly as a church um, for three weeks. <laughs> and then we won't. Not yet. But um, I have wondered going through this um, why we, we don't devote ourselves to that more like we do with the apostles' teaching and fellowship and prayer. Um, just a, a thought I've had in my own mind. Walker. Wait, you're asking why we don't do that all the time, every week? Um, sure. Or every night um, <laughs> we get together. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's a special like thing that we do, and if you do it too much, then you can just try and get it over with, you know, because you're like, oh, we're about to do communion, let's just get it over with and get to the sermon, and mm-hmm. then you don't really think about why you did it anymore. Yeah. That's kind of the justification we use, and I think it makes sense. But we don't do that with the apostles' teaching, right? We don't do that with prayer. It's not like we pray one Sunday a month because we don't want it to get old. Um, <laughs> so it, that's the justific- justification we've used. I think it's kind of lacking. But what does the sorry? What does the Bible say about like how much we should do it? Does it say anything like that? Devote yourselves continually. Do this as often as you think of me. Eat it and drink it in remembrance of me. Yeah. Uh, Jim, and then Dory. Well, so you're saying there when it says breaking bread, it's talking about taking communion? That's my understanding. There are different understandings. But the but very, there's a comma, and the very next verse says they ate their food with gladness. It's not the next verse, it's part in of the verse. In 44. And then Yeah, there's also... Continuing daily in one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness. Mm-hmm. To me, that just talking about their sharing meals, not taking the Lord's Supper. Yeah, yeah and that's a, a common understanding of what communion was. So there are people who won't take communion like we do with just a, a piece of bread and a cup, but they'll make a, a full meal out of it. Um, Brent and I went to a church for a little while where that was the practice, and we do it uh, also, once or twice a year. Said what? Don't you have homes to eat in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but where were they having church? They weren't going to a church building like we do, right? They were going, again, from house to house, having church. Uh, Dory, then Andy. We're doing basically Okay, <laughs> Andy. Well, and to Jim's point, they were... He's like, don't you have homes? And the reason he, he was saying that is because they were going <coughs> and having the communion meal at people's houses and were getting drunk and were eating their food. It was a it was Paul saying, you know, you're you're meeting with us to eat and, and to share in the bread and the wine to commemorate the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, and you're coming over here, and you're coming early, and you're getting drunk, the widows aren't able to eat, you know, uh-huh. this kind of thing. He would, in other words, it was a... Abuse. 
it was abusive and, and he was calling them out for doing something simple when they should have been uh, focused on the Lord, I guess. Uh -huh. Right? So how do you believe we should do it? Um, I don't know. For me, I would like to see it more often than once a month, but we don't have anything that's concrete in Scripture, so... We just as often as we do it, we do it remember it. <laughs> uh, and yeah, the, the fellowship too, that's distinguished. So we should be doing that probably more often than we do. Um, and that doesn't have to be all together having a, a church-wide potluck, but just loving on each other and sharing our homes and our time with each other. Jim? When Jesus instituted that meal, mm -hmm. they, were, they were doing the uh, Passover, which was once a year. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of disagreement on it. And we're actually going to be in 1 Corinthians 11 for the next three weeks looking at the Lord's Supper and different uh, customs and practices and different understandings of what the bread and the, the wine actually are. So we'll be doing that for the next three weeks. That's not really what we're focusing on this passage. It's just kind of, we got sidetracked. But Walker, and then we need to move on. Oh, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, what strikes you particularly awesome about the way that the early church functioned? Um, looking at those passages, those verses in that passage. Well, they worked together. Yeah. It, everything was communal, right? Their Not, to each other. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't like a, a communistic uh, system. Uh, it kind of worked out that way, but it was certainly voluntary, and they had a love and a desire for one another, so if somebody was lacking, they were looking out for each other, realizing that, hey, we're, we're one body, and if one part's hurting over here, I'm going to do what I can to help that, because that affects me, that affects the church as a whole. Any other thoughts on that? I Jim? think you had the oh. Holy Spirit at that time was very active in the sense of what the people were more submissive to his action, right? Yes, there yeah. was an active Holy Spirit. Today it's still active, but we don't see it as much as at that time, because Christ is instituted to a point in the early beginnings of the Holy Spirit who would actually bring the people to Christ. And from there, his documentation or saying, he would spread his the word throughout. This is how it was going to be done. But you had to build the foundation first. Mm -hmm. And that's what was going on. Yeah, so as the Holy Spirit was working in the, the first century early church, he was working differently than he does now, right? We think we are cessationists. We think that those radical gifts of the Spirit have ceased, that they were for a time and a purpose to establish the, uh, the reliability of the apostles' doctrine, that what they were saying was true and there was validity to it. Um, and he is still working today. But as we were talking earlier, I think we're just less submissive to his, his work and his desire to move throughout the church. The same Holy Spirit who was around in the first century is living within us. I think we just quench him much more than others have historically. Jim? Well, some people use these verses to, when it says they sold their possessions and good and divided them among those that had need. Some people use those to say that we should sell everything, our house, our cars, our everything, give everything to the church. But that's not what they did. Because it says they met, they went from home to home. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they still had homes yep. to meet in. So it's you have to take that and consider it. It doesn't say sell everything you own. Absolutely. Give it away. Yeah. 
people do the same thing with the rich young ruler and look at that and say, well, that's uh, for everybody, but it's not. Jesus was just, just drawing out his idolatrous heart and saying, you need to lay that aside and repent and turn to me. And, and we see of, in... Many of them did sell lands and possessions. And yeah. And we read about that. But it, it doesn't say that everybody sold everything they owned. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there was um, context, too, at that time. They had no clue whatsoever that Jesus wouldn't be coming back. He, he was there for 40 days after his resurrection, um, and then he left. I mean, there was a lot of drama going on there for those couple of months, and the natural tendency is to think that he's just going to be gone a little while. We can be very focused if we have revelation that Jesus was coming back in six months, we probably live our lives a whole lot differently. Yeah. yeah, and Paul had to tell, he wrote to the church at Thessalonica in, uh, I think it's First Thessalonians 2 and Second Thessalonians 3, both times telling them, you guys need to work hard because you guys are just uh, living your life, waiting for the Lord to come back and, and selling things as if it, it doesn't matter. Um, and yeah, we should have a, an understanding of the imminent return of Christ, that He is coming back. He is able to come back at any moment. There's nothing that has to take place eschatologically before He returns. But we still need to be responsible. We are still stewards that need to uh, take that, that trust that He has entrusted to us and use it faithfully and not just bury it and squander it, right? Yeah, so we need to be and yeah. involved in those mechanical things Yeah, we still have to be doing these things that they were doing in 42, the fellowship, breaking of bread, um, ministry of the word and, and prayer. And Jim, to your point, in chapter 5, um, when Ananias and Sapphira are rebuked, uh, they're told, well, it was yours to begin with. You didn't have to sell it. And they weren't um, killed because they didn't give it all to the apostles. They were killed because they had lied to the Holy Spirit. They had lied to God, not to man. All right. Uh, let's keep going a little bit. The idea of giving everything away goes against what the Bible teaches, even in the Old and New Testament, about there's lots of verses, especially in Proverbs, about putting something away for your old age. Yeah. Observe the ant who slaughtered. And uh, even uh, in the New Testament, where does it say? It, anyway, it says the man that does not provide for his family is worse, worse than an unbeliever. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to read everything. Amen. But the principle is still applicable today that we should be caring for the church body and we, taking we each other's burdens upon ourselves. Givers. Yeah. But it doesn't say give away everything. Amen. You're supposed to be good stewards. Absolutely. Yep. Both and for sure. All right. John Calvin's Institutes says wherever we see the word of God purely purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution. There, it is not to be doubted, a church of God exists. 
So he's qualifying what a church of God is, where the word is preached and the sacraments are administered. Um, there, the church of God exists. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think back through the slides and how far this goes. We'll just go until we're done, I guess. The local church. God has designed the local church to possess the following qualities. Ordinances. Um, that's a big deal, right? What are the ordinances of the church that we recognize today? Electricity, water. <laughs> <laughs> of baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? Supper. Uh, government, how the church is, is function. Uh, a plurality of pastors and, and deacons rather than just a, a single pastor or uh, a lot of churches have boards. I don't really like that model. I don't agree with that model. don't think it's biblical. Um, there are, as we were looking at in Catholicism, um, popes and bishops and a, a hierarchy of people in, in government. So different governments in the local church, but there should be something, right? A fellowship of the saints, discipleship, just growing each other in the, the Lord. I'll throw these all up there so that you can yeah. take notes. Yeah. Uh, counseling, which is uh, really similar to discipleship, um, to sit down and to show somebody from the word. Uh, how they ought to live their life. It's a, a practical application. Evangelism, taking and sharing your faith. Discipline, which again is really close to discipleship. When we see church discipline, we shouldn't um, think of that as a bad thing. They come from the same root word, disciple, discipline, right? Um, and anytime that somebody is being discipled, they, in a sense, are being disciplined or practicing church discipline. Um, but that has come to have negative connotations for sure. Uh, loving service, I'm not talking about the church service necessarily, though that should take place, but uh, kind of what we were talking about back in Acts 2, to, to serve one another, to have a caring, loving heart. And if that's not uh, present, then can we really say that that is a church? Um, using our gifts, First Peter 4 talks about how everybody has a gift, and we need to use those for the, the building up of the body, Romans 12, 14. Um, and then true worship that is focused outwardly, not inwardly, that has not really uh, transcended our, our culture at large, our, the, the quote-unquote church, right, has a very shallow worship that is focused more on man seemingly than, than on God. So those are some of the, the marks of a local church, and without those, I don't know if you could rightly say that you have a, a church. Thoughts or questions before we wrap up? We'll get into that a little bit next week, looking at those marks a little bit more in depth. All right. What's the difference between a local and universal church? Local church is visible. Universal church is invisible. All right. Which one's bigger, local or universal? Universal. universal. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. But on this diagram, the, the local church is bigger, right? The visible church, I guess, rather. Those who say that they are in Christ. There are more people who claim Christ than who are actually in Christ. But, yes, the if you get everybody in our church together and compare them against everybody who's actually a Christian, the universal church is bigger. So... I didn't ask that question in a good way. <laughs> yes and no, both that. All right, let's pray. God, once again, we thank you for both your local and universal church that you will build your church. The gates of hell will not prevail. 
thank you for these men and women who love you. Um, and as we fellowship and, and worship you together, we pray that you would draw us closer to each other, closer to you. Uh, just uh, help us have a, a good, memorable day of, of worship and fellowship. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.